Welcome to DBPA, the Drunk Bitches Podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Sarah. Each episode, we pair a wine with a topic where you get more lip with each sip. So let's get started. But first, pass the wine, bitch. Welcome, welcome. It is episode 26 of DBP, and we are calling this one California Dreamin'. I like to dream about California. I know. And even after what we just experienced together, I will be constantly dreaming about California. <laughs> so um, this week, so this is our six-month anniversary. Uh, we <laughs> are, I feel so proud that we've we've, we've hit the six-month mark. Yeah. Um, we're actually going to be talking about our second wine movie that has made... I mean, I think popularized wine in general and brought awareness to the consumers of America. Well, I think it's a it it represents a piece of wine history. Uh, absolutely. And this is this might be some piece of history that many people are not as familiar with. So I uh, I had never seen the movie before. So Sarah uh, was like, we need to watch Bottle Shock together. Yeah. And so Bottle Shock on Amazon Prime and other places. Uh, is all about the judgment of Paris in 1976, which is what put Chateau Montalena and Napa Valley on the freaking wine map. Yes, and actually, people refer to it as the judgment of Paris, but that's actually a myth. The name was the Paris wine tasting of 1976. Oh. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's people use that, but that wasn't the official name. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So I can't believe that we have a... Bottle of Chateau Montalena 2014 Chardonnay. Yeah. This is like a representation of California Chardonnay and of just California wine in general. And it, yeah, well, hopefully. I'm okay. So, as many we people know, tried it before. we have never tried Chateau Montalena Chardonnay. I'm going to open it. Um, it sounds lovely while you're doing that. So, the Judgment of Paris or the Paris wine, wine tasting. tasting. Um, was a blind tasting that was actually um, initiated by this Englishman, Stephen Spurrier, who had a wine shop in Paris. And he was like, well, there's a whole other story to it, and we can definitely get into it a little bit more. But um, he's the one who was like, you know what? I think that we should put California wines up against French wines, and we're going to see how it goes. And lo and behold... California beat France in both white and red. <laughs> I think that trend has continued Ooh. through blind tastings. And so the wine that actually won was the 1973 uh, Chardonnay. Yes. And um, it was the, also, I believe, the 1973 uh, Cabernet Sauvignon from Stag's Leap uh, Wine Cellars, which unfortunately we don't have that here. No, we do not. But Chardonnay, as I think we said way back, Oh, let's cheers. We got to cheers. Cheers, bitch. Cheers to this. Oh, this beauty. Piece of history wine. It's very good. So. Wow. As I was going to say, Chardonnay is not my favorite thing. No. In fact, it's like. Like my mortal enemy, my mortal wine enemy, to some extent, it's very challenging to, for me to like Chardonnay, and I, I like want Chardonnay. to. Actually, Riesling used to hold that spot, mm-hmm. and then I've managed to like Riesling. But this 
So we need to talk a little bit about Chardonnay, but we can get there. I know we've talked a little bit about it in episode six, but this is by far completely different from that Chardonnay. Thank thank God. Mm -hmm. Praise the Lord. This is not... It's really good. It's not oaky. I'm sorry. It's not buttery. It's not buttery. No, I mean, and I think Chardonnay, Chardonnays are getting away from being buttery and they're going more to the cleaner unoaked wines or Chardonnays. However, mm-hmm. this, this I believe is made in oak. It is um, oaked a little yeah. bit, but, um, I would venture to say that this is not like new, it's not a bunch of new oak. It says 10 months in French oak. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily say whether it's new old or new or if there's a combination. Oak. So I'm not quite sure. Um, it is 13.6% ABV. Uh, solid. So that's solid for a white wine. <laughs> I think Chardonnay tends to have a little bit higher ABV anyway. Yeah, it's, it's I think, a heavier white when yeah. you think of white wines. It is the most widely grown white wine in California. Um, and that, that does not come as a shock to me. No. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much everyone makes Chardonnay and Cab. Right. In Cali. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know... They say the that um, the style is really important because you can have some crappy Chardonnays, which we that's had, the thing, and that's know? what I think about because I feel like they they even said this in some into in that movie that oak can sometimes be used to cover to mask some flaws, like from either the grapes not being like the best, like I mean, harvest right. time is very sensitive, and also like. In just the winemaking process. And oaking builds extra body. Yeah. It also, you know, provides those baking spices, you know, cloviness and things like that. Um, you're going to get that. But it also, I mean, it definitely, I have had some things that are way over oaked. And I think that one from our earlier episode was. Yeah. That was yeah, heavy it's a little too much. Um, Sorry, I'm trying to warm this up a little bit because yeah. I do think it. We had it in the fridge while we watched Bottle Shock. It needs. Um, it does need to warm up. A it needs bit. to warm up a tidbit, but. But um. Oh, it smells so light. It's nice. Yeah, these unoaked Chardonnays are on the rise, and I'm really enjoying them as I yes. kind of discover them more so than the the oaky. Yeah. The big oak vanilla bombs. The yeah, or the you vanilla, know. the butter bombs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so a little background on Chardonnay in California. Yeah. Uh, we talk about clones, so mm-hmm. most of it is from Clone 4. Where uh, is Chardonnay is, originally from? That is, they were brought to California from France's University of Montpellier. Okay. By the Wente winemaking family in the early 20th century. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, some of the most famous Chardonnays... Um, Spring Mountain, or some of the most famous oh. field selections of Chardonnay. So those are a group of clones that are replicated when a new vineyard is established. Mm-hmm. So Hyde, Hudson, things like that. Um, and a lot of the new clones are from Burgundy. So okay, the Dijon clones we've talked Dijon. about. Dijon, we, we did, we did talk 95, about them. 96. Um, and those have been planted like in the past fifteen years ish. Okay. Uh, so yeah. They, um, they, they have, uh, they don't grow as well as they do in California because they kind of do better in cooler climates and California is a warmer climate than Burgundy. Yeah. So they've had some mixed results on how well those clones have been doing. Uh, but 
little bit about Chardonnay. Some really, some of the best producers of Chardonnay in, yes. in California. Cake bread. I've had cake bread Chardonnay. It is excellent. I know you've gone, you've talked about yes. how you definitely enjoy uh, cake bread. Stony Hill. Oh, I've heard of that. Uh, Navarro is one. Um, and then, you know, there's a, there's a whole list of them. I mean, like, it's a dime a dozen in California, right? Chardonnay. So, like... Yeah. But if you find the It'll good ones... It'll cost you a lot more than a dime, though. I'll tell you that. If you find the good ones, exactly. Then, you know, obviously Chateau Montalena is kind of what helped put Napa and California wine and American wine on the map, really. I so, Yeah. And so I learned for the first time from the movie Bottle Shock, like what actually transpired. And now there is a little bit of, you know, what's fact play, versus fiction. Yeah, we're going to play fact versus fiction. Yes. Um, but I, I think that overall, I mean, we all sort of know how the movie ends because we all, like, well, you can find out anything you want about what actually happened with this whole situation in Montalena itself. But there are some things that I think... We're embellished, right? In movies, they have that artistic liberty, if you will. They gotta sell. Uh, so maybe movies. we should give a little synopsis of the movie, and yeah. for those who don't know or haven't seen it, or you know, we, we, there might be some uh, some spoilers. But um, it's definitely a movie worth watching. So watch it regardless. Yes, even if you know the outcome, it's gonna be okay. You're still gonna enjoy this. Yeah. So the movie Bottle Shock actually in. I'll start, and then if you want to uh, jump in. Sure. Um, Chateau Montalena is a winery in Calistoga, um, part of Napa Valley in California. And it originally was called the Alfred... Um, what was Tubbs. That? Alfred Tubbs. Yeah, so A.L. Tubbs Winery after Alfred Tubbs, who was the founder. Yeah, and so that originated in 1888. Um, and then it was later bought um, and changed to Chateau Montalena um, by Jim Barrett. Yeah, I believe it actually um, was untouched for a good amount of years before uh, the Barretts bought it and okay. named it Chateau Montalena. I'm um, so curious where they came up with that name. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, but um, it actually, when they built it, it's it's if you see the pictures in the movie and like online, like it's this beautiful place that's built of uh stone which was not normal no because most of them were built uh, of wood and so that was uncommon and also it was built on a hillside um to to help with temperature regulation i mean that makes sense yes. you just described how chardonnay does really well in cooler climates so like being up on the hillside mm-hmm. i think allows you to get more of that correct climate or the ideal climate yeah and they um that was again that was kind of ahead of its time um so there's all these these interesting things about the winery itself. But anyways, go on with the, with the story of the movie. Oh, so the story of the movie, it sort of starts... Um, it, it's really kind of cool because it sort of jumps from the U.S. to um, France, where Steven Spurrier, played by uh, Professor Severus Snape, <laughs> Alan Rickman, um, where he has he's trying to start this wine shop but also a wine school in France and is just not getting a ton of traction. And I think that he is recognizing that he himself does not really have a good representation of wines around the world. And so it's like, how can you learn anything if you don't bring wines around the Mm -hmm. world? Um, So there's sort of two simultaneous stories happening. And Steve Steve Spurrier ends up 
in California because he's heard that they have this wine area, this wine region. Obviously, I would imagine because of the relationships that Napa has with uh, France Mm -hmm. in getting clones from the grapes. Um, And so he goes out there and is sort of on a mission to just kind of scout out and find wines that he wants to carry in his store. But also, he comes up with this idea to do a tasting, a blind tasting of California wines versus French wines. Because we know that a lot of people who, you know, brought the varietals over to California, mm-hmm. they had they had those French influences. And so it's there are still a lot, I think, that make wine in the Burgundian way, if you will. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, he wanted to compare or to kind of a fun little clever game, if you will, uh, to show whether or not California arrives to meet the quality of French wines or surpasses it. Well, I think they were never thinking it was going to surpass they it. They definitely didn't think that that would surpass yeah. it. But I think that it was one of those, and I don't I'm, don't mean to come off sounding like this, but like, you know, the French, they really assume that they do things the best. And I mean, they have this long culture and history in winemaking. So I would imagine that they sort of scoffed at the idea, but it was more like, a, let's just do this for fun, for shits and giggles right. almost, you know? And I think he was trying to like, Get, gain popularity of like his store and also because he's an Englishman. Yep. Oh um, yeah, Englishman in France. Yeah, and yep. also be able to have those wines in his store to be able to talk about it in comparison to French wine. Absolutely. I think that was and and when he was doing education. So that's the premise of where this came from. And then he goes to California and he scouts all these different wines and and and. You know, it's it's very entertaining. I don't want to get into the entertainment part of the movie because you should definitely watch it. Um, but he comes up with 12 different wines mm-hmm. that he takes back to Paris. And one of them is Chateau Montalena. And the story about Chateau Montalena, they show um, Jim and his son, Bo. And, you know, because he's Jim's the head of winemaker and Bo is his son. And they kind of go through that relationship and other relationships. Well... And I, I do want to say, too, before we get too into it, but, like, the, one of the reasons why I think that California Dreamin' is, like, the best name for this is because the way that Bo is depicted, not only in the movie, but also, I think, to some extent in real life, as we've learned. The hippie the hippie Sort generation. of hippie-ish, sort mm-hmm. of, you know, not that he wasn't, like, interested in it, but he was just, like, still lacked, I think, some motivation. And so he was, like, just, like... Living on a dream, living the surfer style, like just kind of like everything's cool, man. Don't worry about it. No pressure, no stress. And, you know, I also at the same time, establishing this winery was so important to Jim. Like that was his dream. He was a lawyer turned vintner and that was his dream. And he was, he was struggling, right? He was struggling big time. Yeah. At least what the movie portrays. And, um... Yeah, so then they also talk about Gustavo, mm-hmm. and he's shown as a friend there, and um, what's his last Brambilla? name? Brambilla? Yes. Brambilla? Brambilla. Um, and he is a friend of Bose, and he works at Chateau Montalina for about, so in real life, he worked there for a year. In the movie, he makes his own wine behind everyone's back, and then he gets kicked out, or he gets fired, um, because Jim finds out. However, you know, he takes him back. In all truth, and we'll go through fact and fiction, I think that they didn't leave on bad terms. You're right. Yeah. So he goes ahead. Um, now he has his own winery mm-hmm. uh, called Gustavo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
I'm interested to try some of his wines because I haven't, but he's portrayed in the movie as well. Uh, and then, yeah, so Steve, this Stephen guy picks about 12 wines, goes back to Paris. One of them is Chateau Montalena Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and they, they, they blind taste these wines compared to French wines. With... People in France who have the most discerning palate, mm-hmm. like one of them is the general secretary of the Grand Cru class, mm-hmm. which is like insanely high. And yeah. like, like, if he likes your wine, like, holy cow, like mm-hmm. step aside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, they go through all this and it's a blind tasting. So everyone is, has no idea which wines are from California, which wines are from France. And lo and behold, two California wines win. Ta-da! And one Yay! white and one red. The red was Stag's Leap, and the white is, uh, yeah, this Chateau Montalina Chardonnay. So the, the judges were, like, shocked. And, like, they kept... It they, looked they like they were... It, it seems like they're, like, upset with themselves. Like, how could, they, how could they mess up their own country's wines? Yeah. They were for sure. And actually, Sarah, one of my favorite things is that there is... Um, there's a a bit of like comments I think mm-hmm. that were included in this Time uh, magazine article, and one of them um, says like when they were going through this that is definitely California. It has no nose, like so like anti like everything, um, and then another one said, and that was after sipping the Batard Montrachet. Mm. 73. So that's French wine. That's French. And they, again, immediately thought that it was like, it was California. Yeah. It could not be uh, yeah. a French wine. Um, another one says a good nose, but not too much in the mouth. And this, and another one is this soars out of the ordinary. So like, there's all these things being thrown around. A blind tasting. I want to do one so badly. Like, We're going so to. badly. We have tickets we to have do tickets one. We have tickets to go do yes. one. And it's going to be on a Friday night. It's gonna, we're going to make this shit happen. Uh, but yeah, so the Time magazine, the, the Time article that you mentioned, mm-hmm. there was only one reporter invited to the, to the tasting. And it was this Time magazine Unbelievable. Reporter. And so he came out with this article that became like history in the fact that it reported what happened and it talked about how California beat France yeah. and there was some um there there was some people who didn't believe it and uh a lot of the French news came out and said that it was you know fake news and whatever and oh that these wines weren't gonna age as well as French wines and da 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 but then as kind of the news kind of got out it did get out that it was oh, true definitely. that you know, these California wines won mm-hmm. and they beat out France. Yep. So that's kind of what put California on the map. Isn't that amazing? I mean, California had been such a big wine country anyway, but it was obviously mostly domestically produced. And I I venture to say it's similar to many countries now that still, you know, as we learned with Slovenia, like they produce a ton of wine, but most of it's not export it it's just drunk with in like their like particular region yeah and the interesting interesting thing too as well is that they talk about how this made french wine better because they started looking and seeing what california was doing and trying to reflect and look back at their own wine practices Mm -hmm. because there's so much about tradition are there things they could be doing differently to make their wines better yeah so that's interesting as well that it kind of just 
improve the quality of all wines. I think that's a super good point. And I, I, I also find it interesting because I think that when I think of like French and Italian wines and things like that, you know, these really like deep seated, very historical countries for making wine. I think that a lot of it is just sort of like by the feel of it. Do you know what I mean? But in looking at the movie, like watching the movie and just, you know, learning about things, there is a much more scientific approach to it. And I think that that probably Mm -hmm. has crossed over a little bit more and introduced more of the science into the winemaking for some of the the old world countries. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because France, Italy, those are all, those are old world countries, whereas California, Australia, South America, like those are like new worlds. New worlds. Yes, for sure. So Um, interesting. It is really interesting. So yeah, it's a great movie, and um, there's there's a lot of embellishment in the movie. Um, it As is always. I there's mean, a love story that didn't actually happen in the movie. That's <laughs> that was like one of the craziest things. Yeah, but you have. I feel like in America, you have to put a movie. You have to put a love story yes. in a movie. So I think we should talk about fact versus fiction. Oh my god, yes, this is the best. Okay. So uh, also in the movie, I should mention that. The Chardonnay that won, um, there's this huge twist because the Chardonnay, when they see it after it's bottled, the winemaker notices that it's brown and freaks out. Like freaks out. Like freaks out. Um, He wants to dump it. He wants to dump it. And then they take it to um, some professor, somebody, wine expert at UC Davis, and find out that it's actually a temporary thing and the wine's going to... And it, this whole time it tastes good. It just looks brown. And that the wine's going to turn back to normal color. Uh, so that's kind of a twist in there. So um, there's a little bit of truth to that. A little bit. There's yes. a, there's a, a... So that maybe that should, I, that should be our first fact. Yeah. Fact versus fiction. <laughs> I feel like we need a game show like, fact versus fiction. I like your seriousness. Huh? In all seriousness. Okay. okay. Jamie, fact or fiction, did the wine actually turn brown? Fact. <gasps> Please divulge. <laughs> so, there is this thing in white wine. I God, I can't. It's a phenolic uh, compound. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't remember what it's called. But basically, when it is met with oxygen... It changes the color. Okay. It doesn't have like a drastic impact um, on anything else. It's just the oxidized, it becomes oxidized to okay. some extent. And through that, that changes the color. It's like chemistry, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then eventually Science. it flips back. And so it is a temporary thing. It could last like, I think a couple of days, but it could also last a little bit longer. So obviously like anyone making wine needs to be cognizant of this but also, you know, keep in mind that depending on when you release things and bot- like bottle and release, that is going to impact. There is a little bit of a fictional aspect about what's portrayed in the movie, though. Okay. And that relates to, well, there are a couple fictions here. Okay. Um, and I don't want to jump ahead if you don't want me to. But Go ahead. <laughs> so the couple of fictions are that in the movie, it's portrayed that Jim Bar- Barrett never knew that this happened. 
He was like, what the fuck? Like, I need to throw this out. This has gone bad, blah, blah, blah. And he literally freaked out. The truth of that is that it happened. Jim Barrett was actually a partner with Mike Gergich of Gergich Wines, Gergich Hills Wines. And um, the sad part is that Mike Gergich didn't want to be part of the movie. Yeah, so, so he's not represented. So that's actually why they had to change the story mm-hmm. because they originally had him written into it and he didn't want to be a part of it, and that's fine. Um, and so they had to modify it. So I think that that's part of the reason why the movie has this more fictitious representation of what actually happened because it's not like Jim Barrett was like brand new to this, like where he would never have experienced it. I mean, right. let's be honest. The other thing that got to me a little bit, and this is where I'm really confused, and I would love to look into this a little bit more, is they say that when the the white wine is first hit with oxygen, that that's what will turn the color. And then in the movie, they said that they they kept it away from oxygen. But here's here's what gets me is that when you when you put wine in a barrel. Mm-hmm. Barrels are porous, and so barrels actually, actually like combine oxygen more so. I feel like we just learned this at our tasting last yeah. week. Combine oxygen more so with the wines, and so it just it kind of boggled my mind a little bit because I feel like if you're in a stainless steel or a concrete egg and you're aging your wine or you're fermenting it or whatever, that that would be more likely to have the browning. Yeah. But at any rate, so this, it's called, I think it's called panking okay. or pinking, pinking or panking, one of the two. But basically Mike Gergich, who was like the head winemaker at the time under Chateau Montalena, he actually knew about it and was able to like inform Jim and just say, Hey, this happened. It's going to change back. Don't worry about it. It's, yeah. it's a normal occurrence in white wines. Like we're just going to let it run its course. So... Fact versus fiction, a little bit of mostly fact, but a little bit of fiction tossed in there um, on account of, I think, having to change the story and make it more entertaining. Yeah, and speaking of this Mike Gergich guy, uh, Gustav actually went and worked with him Mm -hmm. for 20 some odd years and then opened his own winery. Okay, fact versus fiction, Mm -hmm. Sarah. Mm -hmm. Bo Barrett went to the airport with two bottles of Chateau Montalena for Steven Spurrier to bring. But Steven Spurrier couldn't actually bring all of the wine by himself on the plate. Fact or fiction? Fact. Yes! Explain what happened, because this is the fucking craziest thing. I'm so glad I got this right. Do it. Yeah. Okay, so uh, they would only allow one bottle to be carried in the carry-on per passenger, and they didn't want... To have it in the um, in the regular checked luggage, hence because it might be bottle shocked or not handled well. Uh, so what they did is they passed out bottles of wine to all the passengers um, that were going on the same flight, and a bunch of volunteers volunteered to carry Isn't a bottle amazing? of wine and help out California vintners. And that's how they got to Paris. That's like, okay. And I love this because it's like the pride of California. Because yeah. everyone who's like in there, in line to board this flight, they're they just like, yeah, we want we want to help. We want to help California. Like they're so proud of the state they live yeah. in and the country that they live in that they're like, 
this is so amazing. Like we should definitely do this. And I mean, that was pretty risky though too, because it, it really was. Cease Prairie was like, okay, on the after customs and stuff, we're all going to meet here and I'm going to collect all these bottles from you again without paying them without like fully like seeing everything that they're doing to the bottles. I mean, if somebody wanted to, they could just like shake that bottle, like the whole like flight. But it, that it's just amazing because he could trust all of these people to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's super cool. I love it. Uh, okay. Fact versus fiction. Sam, the love interest of the movie, is a true person, and that was actually a love story. Fiction. Oh, which is she doesn't exist. She does she? not exist. We said before that they invented the love story, but they even invented this person. Mm-hmm. Like there's no Sam. No. But like I feel like her role in the movie was to sort of like encourage people and piece things together and patch up it was like dramatization. It was a hundred percent dramatization. Um, but like I just don't. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just like, what? There were plenty of other people in relationship. I'm wondering if they wrote Sam in because Mike Gurgish didn't exist in the movie. No, I think she would probably would have been there regardless. Because there, there's so? always going to be a love story in a movie like this. I mean, she I slept like. with both guys, so. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyway. On to the next. Okay. Um, let me see which one I want to do. Um, I don't know what I want. I to can do. do another one for you if you'd like. All right, do all right. It. Fact versus fiction. The Barretts actually lived in Napa Valley during the time of 1976. Fiction. Oh shit. This is so, this is like a meeker, mm-hmm. where they actually lived close to L.A. Yep. and actually drove like to go work there. Could you imagine driving from L.A. to Napa? Well, Jim was actually a pilot, too. Sometimes he flew Oh, that's there. right. I forgot about that. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes it easier, but I'm also thinking about, like, how they're struggling, like, to make ends meet to some extent. And they, I mean, so much so that Jim, like, almost went back to get a lawyer job again. Yeah. Go back to his old firm. But... Like, that they could afford all of that fuel and whether that's for the plane or for a car. I mean, that's that's a lot that's of a dedication, lot. too. I mean, it's impressive. Okay, I have another one for you. Okay. Yes? <laughs> Jamie's like, oh, I hope I know it. You'll know it. Am I winning money after this or what? <laughs> oh, that would be fun if we played this. With Let me blind taste this. Or, mm. or, or bottles of wine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fact first fiction. Jim and Bo had a very tumultuous oh. relationship and actually boxed as they did in the movie. Well, it was going to be fact. And then it turned fiction because of the boxing thing. Mm-hmm. The fact is that they did have sort of a butting heads relationship. The fiction is that they did not violently box each other. Okay. I don't even think there was a boxing ring on their... No, there wasn't. Property, right? No, no, there wasn't. It is a very interesting way, and I actually thought it was really 
good representation in the movie about sort of, you know, almost like what we talked about in the last episode with like trying to get out frustrations. It's like anytime that there was like a real conflict or, you know, something that was like super stressful, they're like, you want to go box? And it's like, okay. So then they go beat the shit out of each other. Like the living crap out of each other. Yeah. And it was like no hold bar, right? Nope. No bars, no hold bar. Is that the saying? I don't know what you're saying. It's like a, it's like a, it's a, it's a saying, but I don't know. No holds bar. Something like that. But they didn't hold back is what I'm trying to say. They yeah. were just like, you know what? Full into it. It didn't matter that it was his father who was like, you know, what, 20, 30 years older. It didn't matter. It was his son. Like they literally went at it. It was amazing. Um, but I think that sort of, again, no physical altercations, uh, no beating the crap out of each other, but still a very, uh, tenuous relationship, a lot of tension there. A lot of, I think Jim was not particularly cool with Bo's, um, lifestyle. Right. And, you know, I, I do think that there is more fact to the fact, to fact to the fact that he was like threatening to kick him out because he just wasn't doing anything. He lacked all motivation. Uh, when you watch his interview, so there is an interview, if you go on the Chateau Montalino website, yeah. there's an interview with Bo Barrett, and he actually talks about some of the fact versus fiction things with the movie. And he does say that he wasn't a slacker like they oh, that's portrayed right. he in did the movie. Say that. Um, but that the relationship between him and his dad was tumultuous. So, I mean, whether or not, I don't know if he was going to kick him out or not or whatever, but... That's that's one of those things. So I don't know. So what? So one thing that I found was interesting, and I'm curious if you think this is fact or fiction, because uh-huh. I don't know that we know this for sure. But you know how, like in the in the movie, like it's Bo, like Jim doesn't want the wines in general to go there, and this is before yeah. this is before they know about the Browning mm-hmm. situation. But Bo secretly takes two bottles. Mm-hmm. And brings them to the airport, unbeknownst to his dad. Like, he literally yeah. has no clue and doesn't know until he gets a telegram that says that they've been accepted. Right. Do you think that that, that actually happened? Really happened? It, it sounds like it did, um, but what didn't happen is that Bo didn't go to Paris. Right. Oh, so yeah, in the that's movie, true. He goes to Paris, but that didn't actually happen. He goes to Paris's representation. That would have been so cool. Ventures, but that didn't actually happen. He didn't actually go. So that would have been really cool. So I mean, you know. Well, I think that was a great round of fact versus fiction. (laughs) We talked about this with Sideways too. You know how much of it was truthful to the book, and actually, neither of us had read the book. I've never read the book, and let me tell you, that movie is like way better. Well, they're so different. Ah, okay. There are some similarities, but a lot of it, I think, just did not happen the way that it did. But that's okay. It's Hollywood. Okay. They have their own own artistic liberties. So go. this put California on the map. And I think, Sarah, you had mentioned before that many people didn't think that this was... They didn't. They almost thought it was like a fluke, mm-hmm. right? So there, there's a lot of concern whether or not California really can surpass French in terms of yes. the wines. So I know that they've, they've you know, kind of tried to recreate this. They actually did recreate this tasting on the 30th anniversary. Well, they actually did it more than one time. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. And so I'm like, but California still tops France, right? Yes, every almost every single time. Isn't that unbelievable? I think it really is. Um, so basically, 
Well, first of all, they wanted to challenge the notion that California, that French wine could be aged better than oh, California wine. Oh, okay. Okay. But Goes first, to the aging aspect. They did another tasting in 1978. So that was 20 months after the original tasting in San Francisco. Um, Stephen Spurrier flew from Paris. He, so he's been involved in all of these repeat wine tastings. Um, and again, a California wine won. So there you go. Um, <laughs> so there you go. 1988. And that's all she wrote. They did one in the French Culinary Institute and same oh. thing. Stephen Spurrier and the wine, the, the California wine won. Congratulations, United States of America. Yep. Wait, can I? Okay, you keep you keep going, but sure. then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss in something that blows my mind a little bit. Okay. There was a wine... Spectator tasting in 1988. Okay. Four of the judges um, were experts from Wine Spectator and two were outsiders. Hmm. Again, blind tasting. Same thing. And these are just France versus U.S.? Yes, exactly. Wow. So the 30th tasting that you're talking about. So this was like the ultimate, like, can the California wines stand up to the test of aging like the French wines can? Will they, will they, will their quality stand the years of aging and the answer was yes oh my god do you have like the wines that yep bridge vineyards montebello of 1971 Mm. was the first stag's leap one second the first five were american united states and the top five top five six through nine were french and Uh, a tenth was was the u.s shut up yeah so it wasn't even just like one U.S. one or a couple up in like the first like few. It was like literally, yeah. I mean, just like blown, yep. blown out, out of the, the fucking water. water. And one of the original, one of the judges was the original judges from. That's the original amazing. Wine tasting. Class. I was curious. Yeah. I was curious if they would have any of those repeats. I'm sure that some of them are no longer with us, or were no longer with us at that point in time, um, as they passed on. Because, I mean, that's. 30 it's 30 years later some of the some of the judges i'm sure were a little bit older but um that's just it's unbelievable and i think you know i do think it's interesting though because there's obviously i think that when you select the wines that are going to be a part of blind tastings or any sort of competitions like you know sort of that they're going to be difficult yeah, well, the funny thing is, too, is when you talk about these and we talk about aging with the 30-year yeah. anniversary, that the wines were all from 1970s, right? I was going to ask. Tasting. Yep, they're all from the 1970s. Unbelievable. Uh, I guess so there's one from 1969. Oh. Um, the French had several years more of experience in making yes. wines at this point. And, I mean, now is a little bit different, but California had only a couple, few years I mean, the, yes. I've experienced with making these wines, and they still won. Shit. And here, okay, so here's the kicker. And I'm so glad that you said that because Stephen Spurrier, mm-hmm. when he, it says here, and this is in, I don't know, it's called Alcohol Problems and Solutions, talking about the Paris wine tasting of the 76. Um, Steven Spurrier actually said that he thought that he rigged it so the French wines would win. Like, he had every intent. Like, he was as blown away by this yeah. decision than, like, as everyone else. Yeah. Unreal. 
I mean, I think that's, that's again, portrayed in the movie as well. Yeah. That he was pretty blown oh, away Oh, he by looks, that. he was very, very surprised. Yeah. And I'm not surprised that, at least how they portrayed him, that he was trying Intentionally, to yeah. sway it towards the French. But I don't think that that would mean that, like, he did say, so, and who knows if the speech is legitimate or not, the one that he gives, like, before he introduces yeah. it, but he does say that they have a, it's, they're original. Mm-hmm. So that almost indicates that it's a unique flavor profile or unique taste that I think most would expect that they would be able to determine whether it's French versus U.S. made. True. So unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, this is just so cool. Okay, so Steven Spurrier is going to be part of the new Psalm movie. Oh. And I know, I don't know that they recreated it. I know that uh, one of the other guys is doing a blind tasting for the first time on screen in decades. Fred That's Dean. amazing. Yeah, but Steven Spurrier is in fact part of Psalm 3 that uh, was released. They're doing they're doing a few releases and Sarah and I are going to go to the one in Chicago. Yep, we are. I'm so excited. I can't freaking wait. I feel like we're like wine cinematic aficionados. Mm. Just kidding, but kind of not really. <laughs> they better serve wine there. Oh, if they don't, I'm bringing some. We should buy one of those wine purses. Yeah, we should. <laughs> like a full bottle. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that'd be fun. So, a couple other, like, fun quotes and shit. Uh, so, that Time magazine that you referenced. Yes. Okay, so, so cool, and they even show this in the movie. I'm so happy that they did, but they, uh, Jim Barrett was, like, called up and, like, asked to give, like, a statement. <laughs> and it's so funny because he says... Not bad for kids from the sticks. Because he even described earlier that, like, everyone thinks that, like, people from California, they're just a bunch of hicks that are just, like, just doing this wine thing and, like, doing whatever they want. They're farmers. Like, they don't know anything. Uncultured, unrefined. People don't think that anymore. Uh, Hell no. I mean, this is the other thing is that it says that California wine was, quote, unquote, rather expensive. And... In 1976, that was like $6 plus per bottle. Well, we paid $6 for that last Chardonnay. Breaking the bank. And we paid about $43, for this bottle of Chardonnay. It's worth it. So what is $6 back then? Oh, yeah. I was so curious. So I found an inflation calculator. And it says, if in 1976 I paid $6 for something, in 2018 it would be $26.62 with an inflation rate of 343.7%. I mean, I can imagine that a California wine for back then, like, that's pretty expensive. Yeah. I mean, even by standards today, I do think that, like, $26 is, like, above and beyond what a lot of people would pay. We got this wine specifically because we wanted to watch this and do an episode about this. So and this is like I was a very so curious to taste it. I would say, especially for not being a huge fan of Chardonnay in general, I'd say that this is this is a worthwhile bottle. So something interesting also about the winery itself, yeah, is that they are have several sustainable practices that they've had. We've talked about this before. Yes. What do they do? 
they've had this for years before like sustainable was even a thing, you know? Right. Because now, we, yeah, we talk like everybody wants to like post everything that they do, which is great. I support mm-hmm. that fully, but what, so what's, what do they got happening? Bo has a quote about his sustainable practices on his hmm. website. He says, Chateau Montalino Winery has been a pioneer in sustainability for over 10 years. In short, we were green before being green was trendy. When the Barretts revived Montalino in the early 1970s, it was during the time of the hippies back to the land movement. And the words we used were then environmentalism and so forth. So. Yeah, so um, they do sustainable farming. Um, they don't use any pesticides. They unbelievable. Yeah, they use all these different practices, including like something with ladybugs that they do. <gasps> really? Yeah. To um, to make sure that their crops are healthy. Yeah. Um, and away from all the. And did you say too that they have like solar panels and stuff? Oh yeah. I thought this was super cool. I did notice other wineries in Napa that had solar panels. and I So they have a 220 wild. kilowatt solar panel electric system that they installed in 2007. Um, oh, wow. And that helps uh, sustain most of their energy needs. So that's pretty damn cool. Really? Yeah. Most of their energy needs. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... Mm-hmm. So this... what? How much they saved in energy was equivalent to the air filtering power of 40,000 trees over the course of 25 years. What? Yeah. So they did a really, they did a really good job with that. Holy shit. Um, yeah. Uh, they're, um, they're t- they have a tunnel system and caves that cover over 25,000 square feet for 4,000 barrels. Well, and actually, I so mean, I can't even believe that. That's amazing. I know that. Um, so the cave systems are really, really. I would actually say I think they're relatively common in Napa. But one of the other things about being on the hillside that you had mentioned much earlier is that being on the hillside allows them, I think, to it, it regulates the temperature a bit more on their well, property. These caves are dug into the and hillside. The, exactly. So yeah. the caves are on the hillside too. So they're underneath, especially if you go in further under the hill, it's much cooler down in the ground. Yeah. And so it, it definitely so regulates the temperature. They're not using energy for refrigeration basically. Right. Which is something that I think, um, I just watched a video of some winery that throws like dry ice onto their grapes like while they're fermenting to lower the temperature. Interesting. Which is probably more cost efficient than like an actual like regulated temperature like <clears throat> vat. But I can't I'm curious like how that impacts the grapes. I don't know. You know I mean, what I mean? That's a good question. Yeah. But so you alleviate Chateau Montalina is like alleviating the need to do any of that because it's already so cool down there and yeah. they don't have to worry about it. Yeah. It's very so awesome. props to them and their sustainable practices. Cheers to Montalena. Cheers. Thanks for putting Napa on the map. Representing the USA. Okay, so if they wouldn't have put Napa on the map, let's have a different California dream for a minute. Okay. If they didn't put Napa on the map, we probably wouldn't be paying the prices that we are for their wines. But I also think that we wouldn't... I think the quality would be a lot less. I think so too, but I also... 
I'm just curious, like there probably wouldn't be quite as many vineyards out there, you know, there's a possibility. I mean, especially if Steven Spurrier was just trying to, you know, prove that France to some extent had the best wines, he would have educated people and maybe, maybe brought awareness, but I don't know that it would have brought the market that it did to the California community and also just to the States in general. Cause think about how many different wine regions we have here. We have California, we've got the Washington, like near Walla Walla Valley. We have Oregon. Oregon. Oh my God. Well, all these came after California. Absolutely. They were like, well, if they can do it, we can do it. Yeah. So. Well, and again, thinking about what you described before is that certain wines grow better in certain climates. And so, you know, Oregon has something totally different. And so does Seattle, like this, not Seattle, but you know what I mean? The right. Washington area. Right. And New York. I mean, Illinois. We drank an Illinois wine earlier. I got a plug for my home state, Michigan. What? What? <laughs> so, you know, it's. It's amazing, I think. It's one of those, like, choose your own adventure, and, like, you can have, like, depending on, like, the outcome of certain things, what if Napa had lost? Like, what would we see? And it's it's unbelievable. Maybe we would have had I another opportunity. To, yeah, I think it's hard to predict, you know, yeah. what would have happened. I don't know. I kind of feel like the wines are so good that eventually it would have been mm-hmm. represented another way. You know what so, my, one of my favorite things was from the movie? What's that? When that man said Zinfandel, <laughs> and that's how he said Zinfandel. That was, that was it good. Was, it was like the representation of him trying to say they were hicks. But that, yeah, that's true. And that actually just showed that even at that point in time, they were already growing. A, their community already knew about the different varietals that they had. So it was like popular there. Yeah. Huh. It was a community. They had a little wine community there. It's much bigger yeah. now. Much bigger. But I mean, like everyone knew everyone, and they say they mentioned there's a quote in the movie where the valley is small, and I think that was a representation of the community was a small community, and they were one for all and all for one, and you know it was like that is the three musketeers, yeah, yeah, we're gonna. I mean, <laughs> if, if one succeeded, they felt they all succeeded. So I and think he, that that was. You're quite right. Cool. And actually, so that is a sentiment that that's actually said in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that you can, you feel that in the movie. The only yes. part where you don't feel that is the, bet- the exchange uh-huh. between Jim Barrett and Gustav, um, oh, about his wine. And I, we know, as you said, you already debunked that. That's fiction. That's, that was not a true firing. That was like, they left on good terms. Mm-hmm. And I think that obviously again, American cinema, we need more uh, attention, more altercations, and blah, blah, blah to make yeah. it more exciting. But it's it shows, it illustrates the support because I think that many, many of the um, pasts that you will see from like these huge winemakers, these big vineyard names, you'll find that they all somehow like integrated with one another like they so and so used to work for so and so and then so and so also like had gave their grapes like they purchased their grapes from this other vineyard and like support and like i think that that's what you're gonna find and it's really it's just amazing because i think like today there's sort of this more cutthroat nature to business but even while we were while i was out there and i'm sure that you have seen the same thing 
there's always like other recommendations. Like nobody puts down no another vineyard. No. Like they're all like, yeah, you know, you should go check out so and so or whatever. I mean, it's really kind of amazing because everybody just wants to help make the community better, make make the quality better. Like you help put out that name, and it's because it benefits everybody if you it do does. that. You it know, does. so I mean, like, good for that. Super evident in the film. I really, I'm so glad that we finally got to watch it. We've been talking about this for, I'd say, going on a year. I know. Uh, and so this is a perfect excuse. It's an amazing story. Yeah. And the movie's pretty good. Yeah. So it's very entertaining. I mean, I enjoyed it. Chris Pine with long hair. Mm, not sure that I really believe it, but yeah. whatever. So. The release is in 2008, so we actually watched it on, in, on its almost 10-year anniversary. August 6, 2008 was its release. So can we, because we haven't actually talked a lot about the actual wine. The wine. So I think that we should close out. Sure. Yeah. With our actual wine tasting, because this has definitely come up a little bit closer to room temp. I know Chardonnay is supposed to be served the between 48 and 54. Yeah, around 50-ish degrees. Yep. It's a good mouthfeel. I enjoy it. Like, it's smooth. Um, I get a little bit of peach it on is. there or, like, apricot maybe. Like I feel like I'm two. getting some lemon. Yes. A um, little bit but of very lemon. slight. It's not, like... But it's, like, lemon curdy. Like, a light lemon curd yeah. nose. It's a good full... It's, like, full, but... It's still delicate yeah. and, like, crisp. And there's... That's why we talked about the oak aging. I really don't think that there was like any new, like a lot of new oak on here. It was, yeah. it's very clear. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think there's so, new oak on here as well. It's, it's, it's like, it's not like that oaky, chard buttery Chardonnay that no. you're kind of used to the old style. Yeah. This no. is, it's so fresh. It's so light. But it does have it's that light, creaminess. It, it does have a creaminess. I was just going to say it's light, but it also has this like lingering finish, which, you know, when you have a light body wine, you're really not going to have. Yeah. I call this because it's not that heavy, that butter bomb, that like really. Yeah. The Chardonnay that some people love that I really despise. Uh, this is, I'd say it's more medium to full body. I think it's kind of a More good balance yeah. between the new version of Chardonnay and the old version of Chardonnay. It's lovely. Yeah, it is really good. It's and it's it's as I said, it's really well balanced. Yeah, and this is a, I mean, this is four years aged. Yep. I know some people get a little funky about aging whites, but. There are some whites that I think are able to age more. Chardonnay goes through this extra ferment. It's malolactic fermentation, which is meant to like smooth stuff out already. Yep, and I think the degree of that also represents some of the butteriness that you get in your yeah. wine. Yeah, yeah, for know? sure. So for sure, um, not it depends on how much people use that technique. Yeah, this is uh, just lovely. <laughs> So the wine maker's notes say that the finish is the de uh, apparent as grilled pineapple, liche, and a rich creaminess linger. And I totally agree with that. Oh, yeah. I kind of get that pine. I do get that pineapple finish. A little bit. For sure. Yeah. For sure. There, is a, there is some acidity there that is still, like, I think, I think relatively pronounced. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that it's, like, an enjoyable, like, too yeah. high acidity. But I do think that it's a medium high, medium plus acidity there because you feel it. You feel the tartness. I feel yeah. like it's more of like a tart pineapple. I know you can have sweet pineapple. I think this is a little bit more tart. 
Um, and it, yeah, it's just really, I almost think that this wine could just be drunk by itself, but I think that you could easily pair it with stuff. You would get, I feel like I'd get in trouble if I drink this by itself. I mean, I mean, this is going down pretty, it certainly is. Pretty, so pretty easily. Also, Chardonnay pairs well with soft cheeses. Mm-hmm. We got Which our brie going on. Yep. Brie is amazing. Um, I know that somebody mentioned Humboldt Fog, which I have never thought that I would know cheese other than cheddar. Until you moved to Wisconsin. Breezy. But I'm like, what the fuck is Humboldt Fog? I've had it. It's really good. I have too. But I'm like, I just thought that was like a special name. I never know that I would have recognized it anywhere else. And so I'm looking at these wine like recommendations and it specifically says Humboldt Fog. And I was like, that is a great ass cheese. It's a great ass cheese. Um, Also pair with herb crusted halibut, um, chicken breast, turkey Mm -hmm. breast. Something that's lighter, but that has a little bit of, you know, a little bit of meatiness to it. Not like a super, like, tilapia is a very light fish. This has a, they, they suggest, you know, fish that has a little bit more meat. I agree with that. Um, yeah, I think that this, this is just great. Pairs well with mushrooms. I love it. I love mushrooms. Mushrooms and truffles, yes. Oh, yeah, that would be oh, good. Oh, I know, I know. It even or, has asparagus on or here. Or popcorn. We talked about this before. It's a Sarah pairing. It's. I think it. Because it's not just the Sarah pairing. It was in Salmon. Oh, Colorado. was it? Okay. It was. Popcorn it's got, and shark. It's like that buttery thing, you know, and mm-hmm. you just, it kind of just works. Super enjoyable. So if you're, if Love you're it. movie night, bottle shock, get a bottle Oh my God, it's so perfect. Popcorn, Chateau Montalena, and bottle shock. Yes. It's the full package, guys. Yeah, I mean, we we realize that this is not the cheapest bottle of wine, and it's a little bit of a splurge, but I would say if you can splurge on a bottle of wine, go for it. This is really Pop good. up a microwave popcorn and uh, yeah. pop on that movie. This is really go good. Go for it. I like it. Get the full freaking experience, people. <laughs> DBP recommended. DBP Okay, on that note, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. We definitely recommend the movie, the wine, all of the above. All of it. Do it. Thanks for joining us for six months, <laughs> and we hope to see you for at least another six months. Hell yeah. We're going to have six-month anniversaries. We're going to have all sorts of long anniversaries. Time. Thank yeah. you for listening. We love you. Bye. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform to help spread the DBP word. Check out our website and blog at dbpcheers.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dbpcheers or on the Drunk Bitches Podcast Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. So send your questions, comments, and fun wine or topic ideas to dbpcheers at gmail.com. Until next time. Cheers Cheers from from the the girls of DBP. DBP.